Well, it's great to be back with you all. Uh, it's a privilege over the, the, this year to be able to be here a handful of times. And uh, as Alex said, you know, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, for those of you who uh, maybe celebrate uh, Lent or know what Lent is about, Lent is a season of preparing our hearts um, and our lives as we think about Easter. I find it interesting, you know, Lent starts on um, Ash Wednesday, which happened to be Valentine's Day this year, and then Easter's on April Fool's Day. So I actually think that's actually... I think God has a sense of humor, you know? I mean, sometimes that lines up to say, hey, you know, we start this season to be reminded of how much God loves us, and the world says, you're fools to think that someone was uh, raised from the dead, you know? But that is where our hope comes from. And so it is interesting from, uh, from Valentine's Day to April Fool's where we celebrate this season of Lent. I asked a, a kid recently uh, in our church, um, so Palm Sunday is coming up. What's Palm Sunday? He goes, I know, that's where you give everybody a high five that Sunday morning. So, well, a little different. We're talking about palm branches, not necessarily a high five on our, with our palm. But uh, uh, I'm excited to be with you uh, as you all, as we all, as Christians around the world lead into this Holy Week and then eventually into uh, Resurrection Sunday. So, uh, this morning, here's what I want to talk about. On Palm Sunday, there's nothing better to talk about than sex. So, we are going to talk about sex. So we're going to talk about sex for the next uh, few minutes here. Oh, yeah, I was talking to S-E-C-T-S. What were you? Th- oh, you your mind's in the gutter. Your mind is in the gutter. So, no, here's what I, what I want us to look at in terms of talking about sex. Religious sects, sects, sectarian groups that existed in the first century. Some of you are going, wait, I thought I was coming to church, not a history lesson. All right? But we've got to understand some background information. And when we understand the background information, then Palm Sunday and the passage we're going to look at is going to make more sense. Okay? So we're going to look at some religious sects. I know that sounds uninspiring, but stay with me. I promise you. I, I, your lights on your dashboard will begin lighting up in a few minutes. Okay? So just hang with me here. So there are four Jewish sects. Uh, in the first century. The first one were the Pharisees. Maybe you've heard of this group, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were, were about pure religious law, okay? You were to do everything that you're supposed to be doing, okay? Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection, there was no afterlife, no demons, no angels, no miracles. They were just moralists, and that's why they're Sadducee, all right? It's an easy way to remember that. They didn't believe in the afterlife or anything. I know it's a dumb joke, but you're going to remember it. I know you will. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in these things. And then the Essenes. The Essenes were down near the Dead Sea, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were, this was a group of people that wanted to get away from the world and just be pure with themselves. Um, and they were separatists, just completely against everything. And then the last group were the Zealots. They believed um, that it was their mandate from God to kill people in the name of God. They were religiously militant people. People aren't following God. God needs help. We're going to take people out physically. And so as you see on the slide here, Pharisees were people that were, if you can think about it today, like religious fundamentalists, right? you got to have everything in order. you got to be pure. you got to have everything right. That's how we can think about Pharisees. Sadducees might be more like mainline denominations, where maybe moralism or being a good person is more important than actually being transformed by the power of the story of Jesus. The Essenes would be like the Amish. They get away. They want to be separate from the world. Right? They believe the best way we love God is to get away from culture. And so that's, that's the, the Essenes. And then the Zealots were what I would call the Jewish Al-Qaeda 
Um, and it's actually where we get our current word zealot, right? If someone is zealous, they may not go out and try to kill somebody, like the original zealots, but they're kind of fanatics, right? Religious fanatics, they're zealots. And so um, let me ask you this question. Which sect do you believe that Jesus theologically was most in line with? Any guesses? And this is where you can participate. I want you to talk. Any guesses? Jesus was most aligned with the Pharisees. Now, let me ask you this. Of all the four sects, which group did Jesus blast the most? The Pharisees. Very interesting. So Jesus would say, I agree with much of what you're saying, but how you're living that out and your motivations that are driving it are something I could never approve of. Now, I want to talk about this last group up here, the Zealots, this Jewish ultra-nationalistic group. This is what I want to look at this morning. Jesus actually did much of his ministry up and around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel near the headquarters of where the Zealots were. Now, last time when I was with you, uh, several weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 2, and we looked at the Sea of Galilee and where, where that was. Now, I want to show you some pictures here of a place called Gamla. You can visit it today. Next slide. Gamla is a place, and yeah, again, this is the, the Sea of Galilee. So Gamla is kind of in the, the, the upper right corner, so the, the northeastern part here. You can see Gamla just in the, the upper corner there. Um, and again, the Sea of Galilee, often called Lake Kinneret in the shape of a harp. So Harp Lake looks like a harp. And uh, so up in the Gamla region, um, it was a politically charged city. It was the birthplace of the Zealot movement, and it was started by a man by the name of Judas. Uh, about 150 years ago before Jesus, Judas Maccabeus, okay, which translated means the hammer, all right? Judas the hammer. Does that not sound like a professional wrestling name or what? All right? Jewish the hammer, right? So if you're a zealot, right, and you have a name, the hammer, as your leader of your sect, you, you kind of know that this, this person believes violence is not only okay, but sanctioned by God, blessed by God to take people out that don't love God. And he led a victory. Judas Maccabeus led a victory over some oppressors some 150 years before Jesus shows up. Okay? Now, there was an outcropping of rocks where you could, in Gamla, put a fortress on top of it and defend yourselves against invaders. And that's exactly what the zealots did. They built a big fortress up on top of this outcropping that you can visit today. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go to Gamla. It's amazing. Now, on the other side of this is a steep cliff that would be great defense from people, the Romans, who are trying to attack you and to kill you. And it actually had a beautiful waterfall there. See that? Amazing, and would flow then down into the Sea of Galilee. Now, there was a massive revolt that happened, and the Romans sent many troops to Gamla to overtake it, to capture it. And in a panic, the people of Gamla, in one day, over 5,000 people fell to their death or committed suicide by jumping off that cliff and died. They did not want to surrender to the Romans because they hated them so badly. And there was a synagogue there. In fact, archaeologists believe it might, might be one of the oldest synagogues that they've ever found in Israel. Now, we don't know this for sure, but we can speak with great confidence of the possibility, the possibility is quite high that Jesus taught in this synagogue. 
Because in Matthew chapter 4, it says that he went around the region of the Galilee teaching in the synagogues. Now, let's just imagine Jesus used Google Maps, okay? (laughs) Now, it would have taken him about three and a half hours to walk to Gamla. It's actually not that far. To us, that feels like a long, long time. But going from Capernaum, his hometown, to Gamla would be almost three and a half hours walking. So Jesus, this was real. Jesus knew who the zealots were. He knew why they existed. He knew what they existed for, and he probably taught in their synagogue. This ultra-nationalistic group of people who were violent, they believed that God told them that because of the defiled ways of people, they should be killed if they don't believe in God. Interestingly enough, you may remember, Jesus, when he calls his 12 disciples, calls all sorts of people. And one of them he calls is named what? Simon the Zealot. He actually chooses someone from the Al-Qaeda to be a part of his 12 disciples. Now, interestingly enough, even more, Jesus puts Matthew in that group of 12. Anybody remember what Matthew did? He was a tax collector. He was a Jew, but he was a traitor because he was a Jew who jumped to the Roman side and decided to rip off his own Jewish people. By the way, Simon the Zealot would feel that God was calling him to kill people like Matthew. Jesus knows all this. He's not caught off guard by any of this. Jesus believes that the message he's coming to bring is so unifying that even the strongest of differences will fall away. Whoa. Think about the potential tension that existed in Jesus' group of disciples and what that was like when he first pulled the 12 together and Simon knew about Matthew and Matthew knew about Simon. The fear, the anger, the resentment. How do you sleep at night if you're Matthew? Now, archaeologists have discovered coins around Gamla. Now, coins would have military and political figures' faces on one side and some sort of symbol to represent what they stood for on the other side. Now, some of these coins have found some inscriptions on them. And for the zealots, the zealots' coins, their symbol was a palm branch. So when you saw a palm branch on a coin, it made you think of revolution, of overthrowing the oppressive Roman government. Judas Maccabeus had coins made, very intentionally, to have palm branches put on the back of them. Because there was a longing to be politically free from the Jewish state and to be out from under the oppression of Rome. Palm branches. Okay. Now the zealots also carried with them short daggers. They didn't have guns. So they concealed these daggers under their clothes, under their cloaks. So the most famous group of zealots was this secret brand of super patriots called the Sicarii. Let me hear you say Sicarii. Sicarii, Sicarii. So they would, they would have these daggers under their cloaks, and uh, the Sicarii uh, carried this. These are called Sicai, these little daggers. Sicca, where we get sickle from, which means to slice. They would carry these like kind of mini sickles under their under their robes, under their cloaks. Then you've heard of the term cloak and dagger. This is the original cloak and dagger group in the world. 
the Sakari. And it was translated, Sakari, as dagger men. It became, this, this, this became your security, your salvation, your identity, the way you had power over people. And they were involved in one bloody revolt after another with the Romans for more than 30 years. At public gatherings, when people were gathered together, people were vulnerable, they would pull out their daggers and take people out. Cloaks and daggers. Okay? Now, this group of people had a rallying cry. Like, like most groups, if you're militant in some way, you would have some sort of rally cry. Right? Think of Braveheart, right? Freedom, right? It was kind of this charge. You know, Bud Light now is dilly dilly, right? These commercials, right? Whatever your charge is, you've got some sort of rallying cry, right? And so for the Sakari, for the zealots, it was Hoshana. Hoshana, which means, oh, save. Save us from these oppressors. It's time to go. Hoshana. So let me hear you say, Hoshana. You guys are like, Hoshana. Okay, so if you're about to kill people and you might be killed in the process, you wouldn't be going, Hoshana. All right? So just, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let it slide this time. But I mean, Hoshana! Hoshana! I mean, like, we're taking them out. Hoshana, Hoshana, Hoshana. Oh, save, oh, save, oh, save. Now, let me talk a little bit about Passover. Again, I'm almost done. We're going to get to the passage in just a second, all right? During Passover on a certain day, Jewish families would select a lamb. As it's stated in the Old Testament, this was God's way of having people feel the rescue that's about to happen. Jewish families would select a lamb and they would slaughter it. And they would eat it. And then it sounds weird to us, but they would smear the blood around a doorway of their house. Because the angel of death would come sweeping through the camp, and those that had the blood over the doorframe, he would pass over them and keep moving to other homes. And those that didn't, the older son, would be killed. Pretty serious thing that happened in Egypt. Slaughter, lamb, blood. Now, in Jerusalem, during Passover, during this time, it was a politically charged time. Passover wasn't just a religious festival, but it was a time to remember the Jews' freedom from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. So naturally, even as they come back year after year for Passover in Jerusalem, thousands of people from all over the region would come to the area. They were thinking about, naturally, about their freedom. And even freedom now from the Romans who were oppressing them, not the Egyptians, but the Romans. And this is often when someone wanted to start a rebellion. This is where and when they would do it. Because people are charged up. They want their freedom. They're all together. There was energy and fear. There was even expectation that something somewhere might happen and this might be the year. You could just smell the insurrection and the rebellion in the air year in and year out. In fact, Jewish leaders who claim to be the Messiah, which simply means the anointed one, would say, I'm the one and we're going to do this. And they would cause riots during Passover, and the Romans would provide extra security measures during Passover because it was so volatile. They'd bring in the reinforcements. Passover and political expectations and religious longings for freedom. 
Now, with all of this background information, from daggers and cloaks and palm branches and coins and the zealots and Hoshanah and lambs and slaughter, now I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. All right? This is what it says in Mark chapter 11 at the, uh, the first 11 verses. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he looked around at everything. And since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I hope some lights are lighting up on your dashboard right about now. Uh, did, did you smell what you just stepped in? I mean, do you see what's going on here? They laid what on the ground? Cloaks. They placed what along the path? Branches. What kind of branches? John tells us palm branches. doesn't say it here, but in, God, in John's gospel, it says palm branches. By the way, palm branches were not native to most of Israel. They mostly existed in Jericho. Jericho is kind of the Miami of Israel, meaning if they had palm branches, it wasn't, hey, go see that down branch over there, just bring it over here. To bring palm branches from Jericho meant a very intentional decision. And they shouted, what? As he entered, Hosanna, or Hoshana, Hoshana. Hoshanah. Whoa. How were they celebrating? What were they celebrating? Passover. What do you do at Passover? You slaughter a lamb. And they expected what? What from the Messiah? Freedom from the oppression with Rome. What's going on here? This is different than maybe we have read Palm Sunday before. They were believing that Jesus would come as a military hero who would overthrow the Roman Empire. John the Baptist described Jesus as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is politically charged during 
Passover. The people using symbols of the zealots, cloaks and palm branches and Passover expectations and yelling, Hoshanah, Hoshanah. What did they want? They wanted a military hero. A king who would overthrow the Roman government once and for all. But there were also religious expectations. Matthew's version of the story of the triumphal entry, as this is often called, quotes a prophecy from Zechariah. And this is what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. What do you think's running through the minds of people seeing this unfold? But Jesus said that this kingdom is not, his kingdom is not of this world. By the way, what day did Jesus ride a donkey into Jerusalem? It was the day that every Jewish family would have selected a lamb to slaughter it. You think that's a coincidence? No way. It's as if God the Father was saying to the world in that moment, you want a military hero, but I will give you a lamb. Will you take it or not? That's what Jesus is communicating as he enters and what God the Father wants to ask that whole crowd. What kind of savior do you want? And this account is in all four Gospels. In Luke's account, it reads that the people were shouting praise as he arrived. But Luke says that Jesus looked at the city and wept. Would you not, if you were Jesus, think, bring it on. They love me. Look at the praise they're giving me. But he wept. Why did he weep? Jesus knew that he was being grossly misunderstood. He knew that they wanted him to be a savior to overthrow the Roman Empire, but that's not why he came. And he was grieved that they did not receive him as he was. And in his deep grief over their twisted expectations and distorted longings, he wept. And it's why, less than a week later, all the people deserted him. You ever wondered why they're praising him here, and then just a few days later, less than a week later, they want to kill him? Crucify him, crucify him. Weren't you the ones that were just saying, Hoshanah, Hoshanah, yay, here he is? It's because they realized what they expected of him he was not going to do, and they turned on him. They had made Jesus to be who they wanted him to be in their minds, which was vastly different from the reason why Jesus came at all. The French author and philosopher Voltaire, who was known for his real quick humor, actually, and uh, who attacked the Catholic Church and Christianity a lot, he had this line that has always stuck with me. He said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor.
even though Palm Sunday and these people thousands of years ago, this is really important for us as we enter into Holy Week to ask ourselves, have we created God in our own image? Have we expected God to be somebody that he never intended to be? Do we think Jesus is supposed to do something he never said he was going to do? How have we created God in our own image? Now, I think there are a lot of, a lot of people that I know say, God's great, you know, Jesus, he's cool. And they treat Jesus in a variety of ways. Jesus as mascot. Oh, isn't he cute? That's fun. He brings a little extra joy to my life. Or they treat Jesus as military hero. He's, he's going to come and we're going to have a better country because he's at the top. And Or they treat Jesus, this is, this is really prevalent, treat Jesus as a personal life coach who's really smart and gives us advice on how we live our lives. But it's really up to us whether we take that advice or not. You know, I have an opportunity to serve um, as a consultant with lots of different ministries and denominations and religious organizations. And the thing about being a consultant is they say, tell us what you see, help us, you know, get better and improve. I have no control over what they do with that information once I give them recommendations. And some of them, sadly, after all this hard work, just are polite and then go politely file my report in a filing cabinet and never look at it again. I have no control over decision-making with them. And sometimes we treat God that way, as this great consultant who gives us real wise things, and then we decide, you know what, thanks anyway. I'm just going to file that away and choose to live the way I want to live. None of these are the reasons that God came. And maybe this Palm Sunday is not only a time to reflect, to ask, have I created God in my own image to be somebody he was never intending to be? And maybe it's time... As we identify some of those, to actually repent of those. To realize that we may be shouting our own hoshana, hoshana, maybe not to kill other people, but maybe to make God in our own image and Jesus as our little hood ornament on our lives or our life coach or our mascot or our consultant. And maybe we need to admit that leaning into this coming week. We need to realize that we need to take Jesus on his terms and not on ours. So after the service, one of the things we're going to do, even though churches all around the world today are waving palm branches going, Jesus is great, Jesus is great, and he is. And we do yell Hosanna because he does come to save. There's nothing wrong with that, but we need to make sure that we understand that Jesus came to save for his purposes, not ours. So one of the things we're going to do, either Alex or myself, just as we leave here in a few minutes, is we're going to actually peel off a frond, a palm frond from this branch here and give you or your family one. And I want to just encourage you, put that in the passenger seat of your car when you're driving around this week. Or maybe on your kitchen table. Or maybe you lay it on the coffee table as a reminder to say, what do I want Jesus to save me from? What is it I really want him to do in my life? And whose image will I allow Jesus to be in? So as we enter this Holy Week leading to Easter, I want to ask you a few questions 
of reflection as we end. How or where might you have made God in your own image? Who are you expecting Jesus to be? And how do we know if that might be different than what Jesus actually came to do and be? Do you see him as a knight in shining armor riding on a white horse to overthrow the political government? Or do you see him as a lamb who came to provide forgiveness and hope for the entire world? See, that's the good news. God says, I didn't come to be a military hero, to overthrow some government. I came to provide salvation and hope and to conquer sin and death for the whole world, not for some political arrangement. It's even grander than we could imagine. See, Jesus rescues us and saves us, but in ways we don't expect or fully understand. See, the crowds desired a deliverance of power from Rome, but Jesus longs to deliver us from sin and death. And that's the good news. Oh, save, Hosanna, Hoshana. He can and he will, but not always like we think. Let me pray for us. God, this Palm Sunday, we pause to reflect on Voltaire's quote. You've made us in your image, but we've returned the favor. So, Lord, we repent of that. And we actually ask that you would take that away in us, that you would help us to see why you really came. You came to rescue us, to save us. And so we do yell, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we do long for you to rescue us, but not through violence, but through forgiveness. Not through power, but laying down that power like you did for us on the cross. Lord, maybe for some of us, we need to evaluate what our, what our sick eye are, what our daggers are in our lives. And to say, that's not the way the kingdom advances through violence or power, but through forgiveness and hope and reconciliation and peace. May we not be the kinds of people that adamantly shout and yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then just five or six days later reject you and say, ah, just crucify him. He's not who we thought he would be. So, Lord, we just want to admit that we want to take you on your terms, not on ours. So as we lean into this Holy Week and we lean into celebrating the resurrection, may we have our hearts prepared to realize the kind of Savior savior you came to be, a lamb who was slaughtered, whose blood was shed for us, who was wiped over the door frames of our lives so that the angel of death would pass over mercifully and we would be rescued. Your lamb was slaughtered for us, God, and we thank you. And may we live in such a way that would honor you by accepting you for who you actually are, not who we want you to be. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.